Yo, 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 what up? This is Muthanomics number 46, I believe. Uh, coming at you, the Muthanomics Saturday morning podcast actually being recorded a few days late on a Wednesday morning, which I'm actually going to publish with a uh, backdate of Saturday so that when you log into the podcast app in iTunes, the dates are nice and nice and clean. Oh, look, every week. Um, get right to it. A couple questions. Um, we actually have two email addresses. Um, there is podcast at Muthanomics and questions at Muthanomics. So uh, you can send them to either one. We got two questions this morning. Uh, first one is related to the uh, recap of when I went out to, to Albuquerque. A person asked, said that I mentioned my weight um, going out there, but I... Uh, didn't actually mention the weight after I was sick. Um, So they're wondering what my weight was after I was sick. So when I went out to Albuquerque, I mentioned that I was 205 pounds. And when I showed up to the doctor's office, uh, probably five weeks later, um, I hopped on the scale and I was 193. So I had lost 12 pounds. Um, So that one... uh, there was a lot of quite a quite a bit of um, weight, quite a bit of weight to lose twelve pounds. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess not eating and not eating and lounging, lying around trying to recover, uh, you burn calories. I guess if I was just lying around and stuffing my face, I probably would have put on twelve pounds. Um, how's everybody doing? Hope everybody's having a, a good week. Um, we'll get to the second question a little bit later. Uh, quick recap on the stocks. Um, Rolls-Royce got exactly what uh, I wanted to have happen with Rolls-Royce. R-Y-C-E-Y. Um, they announced on Friday the 24th that they had received the B-52 bomber contract to revamp the B-52 engines um, at their Indianapolis facility. So it was nice uh, seeing all of the research and trying to connect the dots. Um, You know, I I think a lot of times when you're researching stocks, you kind of feel like, you know, a crackpot investigator from one of those like 70s cop shows that's got their they're like vision board on the wall with pictures and strings and thumbtacks holding the strings together. And they got like a spider web of connections. Um, that's kind of how I feel when I'm researching stocks. But my my thesis was one, that Rolls-Royce was undervalued um, because of the pandemic, um, that the price reaction in their share price was was an overreaction. Um, and then, you know, you start researching the fact that they're putting 600 plus million dollars into a facility in Indianapolis. Um, and you put that together with the fact that they bid on the B-52 engine contract. And, you know, you, you kind of put the, put the thesis down that, hey, you know, they might, they're setting themselves up to get this B-52 contract. Um, so that was kind of my thesis. It took forever. Um, but they did finally announce on the 24th that they got it a minimum 500 million over five years and up to 2.6 billion over five years. Um, I think the lesson from that particular 
you know, that 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 whole thing, I, I've been trading Rolls Royce since, I mean, I actually traded them all the way back uh, last year. Um, first time I traded them, they had some really bad news come out and they plummeted. They plummeted um, from like the high twos into like the low ones. And I bought them in like the 180s, 190s, and the very next day sold them in the 240s on the bounce. And then just kind of sat there and watched it. But I think the lesson from trading Rolls Royce is you're never gonna catch the lowest point on your entry and you're never gonna catch the highest point on your exit. And I think if you can accept that as a trader, uh, it's gonna it's gonna help you a lot. What I mean by that is after that initial trade from the one, say 190 to the 240 range, um, I watched it and I entered, I re-entered a position um, at 157 and it continued to slide and it continued to go lower and lower and lower. And when I entered it at 157 on the chart, it, lo it was looking cherry. It was oversold. It was like, this is the lowest it's been, but it kept going down and it went down into the 120s, I think I mentioned. And I, I ended up buying more at around 123, uh, 124, and it went all the way down to 121. But with the half of the purchases at 157 and the half at 123, 124-ish, my average was 140. Um, so on the Rolls-Royce news on Friday, they bounced up to the mid-180s, and uh, I ended up it was wickedly oversold or overbought on the chart, like just bananas overbought. And the last you know week of trading, it had gone like totally vertical. Um, so based on that, um, I exited some of my position just to take some profits. And then on Monday, they had the double whammy news, which was the other catalyst we were looking for, is that they disposed of their... I think it's ITP Aero. It's a South American uh, airline brand that they were wrapped around the axle on, and it was loaded with debt, and it was really, it was really becoming a burdensome, a burden for them to carry. And they had they announced on Monday that they disposed of that, um, had had sold it, and so their stock shot up to one ninety nine. Um, I resisted the temptation to chase it. Um, because again, on the chart, it was just bananas over overbought. Um, so I'm, I'm currently just uh, sitting there and kind of watching. I think it's got a little bit of correction. Um, and sure enough, uh, let's see. Yeah, it came down on Tuesday, yesterday. Uh, it came down to as low as 185, big red candle. Um, so I think it's got a little bit of cooling off to do. Um, I mean, when you look at the three-year, the three-year, the target is easy. The target's 350. And it did break out of its downward wedge, which is when I when I bought it. And if you want to, if you want to any of this stuff, I'm I'm working on a set of uh, training videos that I'm that I'm publishing over at brandonmute.com. Um, but one of my favorite uh, patterns that I think is easily identifiable is the descending wedge. And what's interesting is when I drew that descending wedge, 
uh, earlier this year, it showed that the the pinch where the pizza slice comes together, the pinch was going to be in the 130s, and it ended up being uh, in the 120s, and then it's kind of broken out from there. Um, so I think my plan right now with, with interest rates going up and Evergrande's debt looming, I'm just going to kind of, I'm sort of in a wait and see mode. Um, I think the next catalyst for Rolls-Royce is going to be when they announce that they're going to have a share buyback. Because when the pandemic hit, they diluted the shares pretty substantially and that, that contributed to their drop. Um, so I think their next catalyst is going to be, th their next catalyst is either going to be that the UK is funding their mini nuclear reactor concept or that they're having a share buyback. So um, kind of wait and see mode, but it is kind of nice to actually have a uh, trade thesis set up and, and materialize. Um, and I think that's what I'm concluding. I've done a lot of day trading um, the last two years where I mean, this year alone, I've, I've, I've traded over 200 ticker symbols and it's kind of getting your reps in. It's like, you know, if you're a basketball player going out and making a thousand shots a day or, you know, going to the tennis court and just, you know, hitting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of balls um, a day. Um, you know, but as you do that, you kind of figure out like, okay, you know, this is what I'm really good at. These are my strengths. And what I'm realizing from all of this day trading is that you really only need one good trade a quarter so uh so so i think where my focus is going is on spending the time on the research and developing a well uh documented well-reasoned thesis for why a position should be um bullish or bearish and then you know make that make that trade and you know, just do, if you could do one good trade a quarter, uh, I, I think that that would be a lot less um, stressful than making, interacting with 200 tickers just based on colors and lines and whatnot. So anyway, that's, uh, that's the Rolls Royce. Um, I tried to fix the dryer. That's another thing that transpired this last weekend. Um, we bought a dryer when we moved into this house, August of 2020, brand new dryer, Home Depot. Um, surprisingly, it wasn't like super backlogged with the supply chain issues. Um, so we get the dryer and, you know, I didn't pay attention to the dryer switch. Like I just assumed it's a front, it's just a traditional dryer. It's not like those fancy round ones, you know, that have like the, the, they're stackable and they're, they kind of look like laundromat washers and dryers where they're like, they, the they open towards the front and all that stuff um, because those things get out of balance and they break pretty easily from uh, personal experience. So I went with a traditional boring, you know, top load washer and the, the boring uh, traditional dryer. And most of the time on those, there's just a little knob that sticks out um, in, by the door area. And when the door closes, it just pushes this knob in. It looks like a pencil eraser. And it just pushes it in and that's the switch and it turns it on. Well, uh, last week, our one of our sons is like, hey, dad, the dryer's broken. It's not working. And I went up there and I was like, oh, man, come on. So I'm looking around and I don't see the I don't see the little uh, pencil eraser button. And I was like, what's going on with this thing? How does this thing turn on? So I go on YouTube, 
Whirlpool dryer not working. And their first result is this thing. Um, switch broken off. And so I look and sure enough, the switch on this thing is like the best executed planned obsolescence engineering that you could possibly come up with. <laughs> I wish you could see I'm holding it in my hand. It is this flimsy little black piece of plastic that comes down out of the top of the dryer and then bends forward. And when the dryer drawer closes, it pushes this, this like, it's kind of like a, it looks like a, a weak number seven. Like it's kind of like a, maybe a, a shallow V. I mean, so that it comes straight down and then the switch kind of protrudes out on an angle. But it's only the thickness. I mean, literally, it's the thickness of a paperclip. And it's about the size of a paperclip. Like if you look at it, it's sort of it's shaped kind of like a paperclip. It's kind of rounded, like a rectangular E kind of rounded thing. And then when you look at it from the side, it's literally um, the thickness of a paperclip. But it's just this real brittle, um, hard, frail plastic. And of course it's gonna break off when you have teenage boys slamming the dryer drawer on this, not just gently closing it. Um, so the YouTube video, um, the YouTube, it shows, hey, how, here's how you fix this thing. Pop off the top, there's two clips, you get a flathead screwdriver, you pop off the top, um, make, make sure it's unplugged obviously, pop off the top, and then to the right side, you just unclip the switch and put in the new switch and you're set. Well, I was like, screw that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play this game of, of giving these people money on their poorly designed yet incredibly effective planned obsolescence switch box. The switch still works. So I, I got a little, um, you, can, you can reach up in there where it snapped off and with like a, like a real small flathead screwdriver, you can push the switch in and the dryer turns on. So clearly the dryer is still working. It's just that this tiny little half inch piece of plastic um, that's brittle and designed to fail, uh, failed. And so I'm going, okay, I'm going to get around this. I will uh, beat the planned obsolescence. I will not go along with this planned obsolescence, even though this new switch is only $7.85. But you can't get them at the local store. You have to order them online. And with the parts being back ordered, um, you know, who knows how long it's going to take. So I was like, I'm going to fix this. So I go down to uh, Home Depot and I knew exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for these little uh, clip pins. And I'm sure you've seen them, but if you go to Home Depot's website and you search clips, um, you will find two different types of clips. They're one of them um, is that they pinch together. It's like compressed springy metal. And you can squeeze things between the two ends. And because it's like a springed metal, it really clamps down hard. And so my thought was, well, I'll get one of those and I will slip it over the, the little skinny piece of plastic that's up in the machine. Um, and then 
the door will close on the metal and it will push that switch back. Um, so I ended up getting two types of different clips. I spent like, I think they were like a dollar eight per bag and I got two bags. So for $2.16 plus tax, um, I was like, cool, this is gonna work. And I actually took the little broken piece of plastic down to Home Depot and, you know, made sure that, okay, yeah, it's gonna slip in between that metal and it'll, it'll work perfect. So I get two different kinds. One of them is the flat, it's just flat with a little like um, eye hole on the end. And then the other one, it's flat on the bottom, but then the top clip sort of makes a W shape. Um, so I thought I'd try both because the W shape one, the little, the rounded eye holes bigger. So I thought, okay, that'll, you know, stick out farther for the door to, to engage with it. So I get my, I get my utility lamp and I, my little clamped light that I have a couple of them for, um, for projects. And I calmly go upstairs and I, I there's four screws to take off the dryer drawer so that I can, you know, lie on my back and see up into where the switch is easier. Um, because I've done projects before where I'm like, ah, screw it, I'll leave the door on. And then, you know, you like throw out your neck and end up breaking the door off when you slip and all your body weight goes on it. I was like, all right, just take the four screws off. It's not that hard. Let's do this job right. So I take the four screws off, get on my back, put the light up in there, and I can see exactly where this thing needs to be. So I take the the first flat one. Um, actually, I start with a, the W one with the bigger, the bigger hole. Um, the bigger protrusion and I, I get exactly where I want it and I've already slipped it over the broken piece of plastic. So I know that both of them fit because it slips over and, and it's, it's solid and I'm holding both of them in my hand right now, the, the clip with the black broken plastic. So I get up underneath there and I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to just slip this on. Bam, fixed dryer back in business. I beat the planned obsolescence a-holes and so I, I get up, I'm trying to slip it up in there and it's like, it won't go over the, this little black entry. And I'm like, son of a gun. Those guys put like a barrier. They, they designed a barrier right where that switch broke off that's flush. There's a barrier that you can't get anything up in between. And I was like, holy cow, they really don't want you to fix this thing. They want you to buy the $7.58 switch. And so I'm, you know, I'm giving live commentary from, you know, the top floor of our house yelling down at my wife and kids. Babe, can you believe these guys? They they put a barrier where you can't get a, a clip on here. Um so instead of getting frustrated and like, you know, trying to jam and muscle the clip on and like, you know, having it slip and pierce my finger and end up in the emergency room getting needing stitches. I was like, all right, cool. I got this. Um, I'm going to pop the top of the dryer and I'm going to unplug the switch and I'm going to take the switch down to the table and I'm going to look, look at it closely and see if there's a way that I can remove this barrier um, and, you know, get this clip on because I know the clip fits. It's literally sitting, it's clipped on and sturdy as I'll get out over the broken piece. So I'm like, all I have to do is just get it up on a piece that's not broken, problem solved. So easy peasy lemon squeezy. Get a little, um, I didn't use a flathead screwdriver. I used uh, um, like a concrete trowel kind of thing, like a firm, like a, like a putty knife for sheetrock sort of. Um, but a thin one, it wasn't like a real, you know, four inch wide one. It was like the inch and a half wide one. So you just slip that underneath there, give a little, give a little leverage and 
left side pops off, go right side, give a little leverage, right side pops off. Prop up the top of the dryer, sort of like a hood on a car when you're checking the oil. Get a little, um, actually I went and got a, got a uh, rounded seat pillowy thing that my, was in my daughter's room and I just set on top of the dryer um, bin with, and it propped the lid open, saw exactly where the switch was and I was like, cool. Gonna take the switch off, go downstairs, solve this problem like a man. So I saw on the YouTube video that you need a little flathead screwdriver to get the clip on this plastic switch to pop loose. So I was like, all right, well maybe I can squeeze it with my fingers. So I'm squeezing the, the little clips and I'm pulling and it's not, it's not really working. So I was like, all right, I need to get the screwdriver. So I get the screwdriver, come back up all the way down. This is on the top floor. So I have to walk down the main floor and then into the basement, into the garage, grab the screwdriver, come up three floors. I'm sitting there and I'm holding, got the lamp set up perfect. I've got the lid propped up perfect. I've got um, calm, clear mind, not getting frustrated, like clear plan. Um, know exactly what my goal is and just want to get this thing off the dryer so I can take it down on the table and see if there's a way to remove this barrier and get this metal clip on. Holding the switch in my left hand, working the little um, clip thing with my right hand and the screwdriver, and I'm applying pressure to pull away from the pull, pull the switch off of the dryer and use the screwdriver and I'm pushing and it's like not, it just needs a little bit of extra love. So I take my left hand off of the actual switch and I, I just put it on the spot with the screwdriver where I'm trying to you know free up this clip and I push with both hands. The clip goes flying off and ricochets off the barrel of the dryer down the side. <laughs> so... Now this switch, gravity has taken the switch down the side of the round tumbler. So it's inside of the square dryer metal box, but it's underneath, it fell between the inside of the, of the, of the square metal box and the round tumbler. And I'm like, all right, cool. Well, I'll just reach underneath there and get it. Well, guess what? As skinny as my arms are, <laughs> there's not enough clearance to get my skinny hand and skinny wrist and skinny forearm between the side of the metal box and the round tumbler. So I'm like, all right, cool, let me try it. So I get down there and it hits my wrist bone and I can't go any farther. And I mean, I'm pushing hard and I was like, okay, this could turn into calling the fire department. Uh, got a man who's stuck in a, in a dryer. Um, so I didn't force my wrist bone past where it wouldn't go. Um, so I was like, you have to be kidding me right now. Planned obsolescence is just continually kicking my butt. So this, you know, this quick fix has now turned into an hour and 15 minutes between going to Home Depot, coming back, popping the top, trying all this stuff. So I thought for a second and last last line of defense my i went downstairs and i said well planned obsolescence one brandon zero and the kids and wife are laughing at me and uh my wife says well why don't you try the dryer um uh, maybe or not the dryer the vacuum cleaner maybe you can use the hose on the vacuum cleaner um to suck up the switch you know to, to, because there was a little spot like in the front right corner there was a spot where there was room to reach down in there 
Um, so I was like, all right, cool, I'll try that. So I take the dryer, the vacuum cleaner upstairs. I put the little skinny, you know, attachment thing on the hose. And sure enough, it fits down the front right corner, but it doesn't have the flexibility. And there's not enough wiggle room to get it actually to get to the switch. So after, I don't know, five or 10 minutes of monkeying around with the, the stupid vacuum, um, I just threw in the towel, walked downstairs, got on my iPhone, and clicked buy. <laughs> so planned obsolescence uh, totally ate my lunch over the weekend. Um, which is so disappointing because I wish I could show you this through an audio format, how perfect this little pin clip setup was. But, oh well, the switch is forever entombed in the bowels of the Whirlpool dryer between the square metal box and the round tumbler. So best part of the story is that if I would have... Um, if I would have bought the switch on the Wednesday but prior when it actually broke, it would have been here already. Um, but because I waited till Saturday to order it, uh, it's not arriving until the 28th at the earliest, which was yesterday, and I still haven't seen the switch. So we are currently, uh, it, our house currently looks like we're living on Little House on the Prairie with clotheslines and clothespins and uh, clothes hung up all over every last surface of our house um, to dry the laundry of six people, um, all because of a stupid little plastic switch that is the most poorly designed piece of engineering yet most brilliant planned obsolescence I've ever seen. And you think about it, I mean, I got thinking about it, I was like, man, these planned obsolescence people, um, I mean, I don't know, let's say that Whirlpool makes 10, 10 million dryers, and let's say that those switches fail once a year, times $7.58, they're making, they're making 75 million bucks off of a bunch of boneheads like me. I mean, that's that's a decent revenue stream for a stupid piece of plastic that costs you, costs you probably like an eighth of a cent when they're mass produced. Oh my goodness. So yeah. Planned obsolescence, man. It's it's the it's I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. It's the pits of the world. I mean you kinda Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. On the one hand you want to have quality, but on the other hand, if you make it so good it never breaks, then what are you gonna do? Um just become iPhone and release a new version every every six months. I think we're up to like the iPhone 13, which I don't really want to do because I was reading that the I I think I think the new iOS. I never update my iOS, never. I always buy refurbished phones that are always a couple models behind because they're super cheap, and the kids are always like, "Oh, but that's an old phone, Dad. You look like a doofus." And I'm like, "Yeah, if you would have gotten this phone two years ago, you would have thought it was the coolest thing ever, just because it only has two cameras on it instead of 14 on the back." Um, like a freaking periscope coming out of the top. Uh, you know, if you would have gotten this phone in 2017, you would have been super excited. So uh, just slow your roll there, slow your roll. But the new iOS, um, they're introducing a feature under the guise of safety where they will read. I think that, I think what I read about it on, I think it was on, um, 
uh, what's that? It was on Wired. I read an article on Wired, and they were saying that the privacy people are very concerned about it because what I read on the article was that the new iOS perpetually searches your text messages to flag things that might pertain to child abuse. And then it perpetually searches your photos to flag what might pertain to underage, inappropriate, uh, like, I guess, child pornography. And so under the guise of safety and protection, um, I think the new iOS, and there's and according to the article that I read, there's no way to turn it off. Um, and... I mean, you can be completely opposed to domestic abuse and child pornography and still conclude, uh, <laughs> that, that's a little creepy, Apple. That's a wee bit creepy. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I, I never update iOS anyway. Um, just one more reason not to. I, I'm, I'm convinced there's a big... You know, just like VPNs blew up over the last decade, I'm convinced that there is, although a VPN is only as good as the company who is providing it, um, I'm convinced that there is a market for uh, more anonymized, anonymous, is anonymized even a word? Can you turn anonymous into a verb? I'm going to anonymize it. Um, it's It feels right, it feels right, so I'm gonna roll with it. Anonymity. I think there's a market for that. Um, I don't know who's going to do it, but got to talk about the Nirvana guy. In fact, my son came to me last night and he was like, "Dad, I'm seeing Naomi Osaka in so many commercials. What the heck is going on?" And I was like, "Well, if you listen to the Muthanomics podcast, like several hundred astute." individuals do around the country every week, uh, you would know that what's going on with Naomi Osaka is that we have incentivized victimhood. Um, and he was like, yeah, but she said that she couldn't handle the public eye and I see her in like every single commercial. And I just started laughing. I was like, yep, welcome to the game, playa. Don't hate the playa, hate the game. Or is it don't hate the game, hate the playa? No, it's don't hate the playa, hate the game. Um, the game is we've incentivized victimhood. And I've shared a couple instances of that, uh, not the least of which, which I haven't gone over, is the Nirvana baby guy, the little baby that floated on the cover of that iconic, what, 1991 uh, Nirvana album. You know, there's that baby submerged under the pool and some guy took an underwater picture of this baby floating in a pool and they used it for the cover of the Nirvana album. He's suing for sexual exploitation. He's suing for victimhood. Dude was probably what? I don't know. I, I, I don't remember my baby sizes all that well. I'm guessing he was six months. Just floating there in his birthday suit. And he's suing for sexual exploitation. Um, talk about the ultimate delayed victim card. Goodness gracious. You know what, we're gonna goose this and see. As I've said, my my uh, my love for DuckDuckGo is is being is challenged on a daily basis. Near 
Vana baby lawsuit. Okay, hey, at least they autofill that sucker. Where are we at with this thing? The Nirvana baby's lawsuit asks us a tough question. Why the Nirvana baby lawsuit is a warning for parents? Oh, geez. Yeah, right here. Oh, this is on the HuffPo. I hate supporting the HuffPo. I clicked it too late. <laughs> oh man <laughs> forgive me if you're offended by the, the naked nirvana baby nirvana's nevermind baby is suing the band for sexual exploitation now 30 year old spencer eldon calls the iconic image quote child pornography and accuses the deceased kurt cobain of depicting him quote like a sex worker What I, I, I what's the dollar amount? Eldon, thirty years old, is seeking at least one hundred and fifty thousand from fifteen. What is that? Three milli? I think that's three milli. Is my math is my math brain on fire this morning? This math brain's on fire. What? No, I guess it's not on fire. I was all excited to sing the uh, Alicia Keys. Is that Alicia Keys? Rihanna? I don't know who it is. Alicia Keys. Uh, math brain's not on fire. That's 2.25 million. Um, I was going to sing this math brain's on fire, but it's not. It's way off. I thought that was 30 mil. Why did I think it was 30 mil? Oh, because I'm lazy and I just went 15 plus 15 is 30. So, brr. Um, fifth, if he was if he was suing 20 named defendants, then it would be 3 milli. Um, so, 15 times 15, 2 and a quarter mil. Uh seeking at least 150,000 from each of the 15 named defendants, including surviving surviving Nirvana members, David Grohl and Chris Novoselic, as well as Cobain's widow, Courtney Love, who remains an executor of his estate. He's also seeking legal fees and other unspecified damages. Uh, yeah, I, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like, I mean, if we weren't knee-deep in victim culture, I don't think this lawsuit would have come about. I mean, what is the is the Gerber baby? The Gerber baby was not naked. The Eldon family was reportedly paid 200 for the image. Never mind, went on to top the Billboard 200 chart, boosted by classic singles, Smells Like Teen Spirit, and Come As You Are. I'm going to listen to Sir Nirvana today. Um, now an artist himself, Eldon has honored the milestone anniversaries of Nevermind by recreating the iconic pose as both a teenager and adult, albeit wearing a swimsuit. Thank you. Thank you. We don't need to see teenager and adult junk floating in the pool. Gross. It's gross when it's a baby too and exploitative. Um, you know, I think what's going on here, this is just my jaded capitalistic take. Um, I think what's going on here is this guy's bent that his parents were probably freaking hippies and like had zero negotiating skills. <laughs> and now on the tail end, 30 years later, he's like, mom, dad, 
Why didn't you freaking put in royalties, commissions in perpetuity, you morons? So that's probably what's going on here. 200 bucks. Um, you know, yeah, they were probably starving artist hippies who had no clue. They're like, oh man, we're just doing it for the art, bro. I mean, even, even the Nike, even the Nike person, I don't remember, I'm sure they renegotiated this thing by now, but the Nike guy was like, hey, I get a, I get a penny and a half for every time this logo appears. And they were like, yeah, okay, whatever, cool, go for it. That's an urban legend and not true. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've, we, we studied that in, in business school. Um, I've, I've heard that story at different graphic design conferences on how to protect your intellectual property. Um, so just because your parents were stoned out hippies that had zero business sense and were just in it for the art, dude, um, doesn't mean that you can now 30 years later circle back around and try to make up for their terrible business sense. I think that's what's going on. So moral of the story, become a good capitalist so that when you sell pictures of your naked kid floating in a pool that, oh my goodness, you're terrible. We're reporting you. iOS 13 is going to get you. Yeah, become a capitalist and then you can negotiate for future intellectual property rights. That's, that's I think, basically what it boils down here, down to here. Um. Yeah, I, I just don't buy it. I don't buy it that it's sexually exploitative. Um, I don't buy that one stinking bit. And you go, oh, but you're a, you're terrible. You're a monster. Um, no, if you have kids and you've ever been to the pool, like that's just a part of the culture. It's one of the reasons I hate going to pools because you're guaranteed to get a lot of baby and toddler urine in your swimming experience i mean we used to go to this pool in tampa and it was in the summer it was blazing hot i mean florida's always hot you go to the pool in the summer it's hot as all get out and kids are hopping in i mean the pool got shut down like twice a week because some little baby or some little two-year-old you know pulled off their swim diaper and stinking dropped a deuce in there and it turned into caddyshack with a snickers except it wasn't a snickers candy bar it was actually a turd and everybody screams and panics and you know it's like a mass exodus out of the pool it's like that mr wizard experience experiment where you put like a plate down with like oil and water and pepper and you drop something in the middle and the pepper goes doosh out to the side um i mean it's 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 like and nobody sat around and was like that is exploitation no it's a it's a little kid freaking pulling off his diaper and dropping a dropping a loaf in the pool I mean, it's just part of the culture. And then, you know, be like, come on over here, Clayton. Or uh, what are what are some of the lame names these days? Um, it wasn't like Frank or John or, you know, it's always like Spencer. Spencer, get over here. My name's Spencer and you're offending me. Well, go, go sue your parents for, for calling you a bad name. Yeah, they'd call the kid over and they'd sing and take off their swim diaper and the kid would be like, what? and run away, run away with his little, you know, naked body and they're chasing him around the pool. I mean, it's just part of the disgusting public swimming pool culture. You're dealing with urinating, crapping little kids who, for whatever reason, prefer to not have clothes on. <laughs> Freedom! Freedom! <laughs>
In fact, in fact, there was a hippie instructor um, who gave swim lessons at the pool, and she promoted that it at a if you had a private pool, she promoted um, she promoted quote natural swimming lessons for your children because she was like, oh, we descended from dolphins and they swim around without clothes on, so we should do the same thing. It's better for your baby to learn to get comfortable in the water. And it was like, uh, all right, all right, hookah smoker lady. Um, so yeah, I don't buy it. I, I think he's just pissed that his parents were not capitalists. <laughs> and he's, he's retroactively trying to uh, make up for the lost expectations of, man, I probably would have $2 million in the bank right now if my parents would have just said, yeah, we'll sell you this picture for 200 bucks plus 10 cents for every time it appears. Or something like that. But we're knee deep in a victim culture. So instead of just saying, man, my fault, my parents' fault, go read some free market economic books and uh, don't make the same mistake we did, it's, oh no, I was exploited. Um, so whatever. I mean, I guarantee you people will be like accusing me of not being sensitive to the guy's feelings and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, really, if you're, if you're embarrassed by a picture of you when you're literally six months old and you have zero mental cognitive abilities other than to like bear down and grunt when you're squeezing one out. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, and and talk about like you could line up you could line up ten pictures of a six month old baby. You wouldn't be able and and then you could you could look at the adults. There's no way on earth you could properly identify them. Babies all look the same. They they all six month old babies. They all look like a friggin' frat fat grubby tomato worm. I mean, there's no way on earth. That anybody's gonna be like this. What's this dude's name? Eldon. Eldon. What's his first name? Come on. Where where is it? Huffpo. Uh. Thirty year old Spencer. Oh, his name is Spencer. No wonder I came up with that. I I was. Wow. Talk about the subconscious working. Sorry, Spencer. <laughs> I guarantee you, if you're up in Seattle or wherever this clown lives, and you're walking down the street. And you see this 30-year-old on the sidewalk. You're not going to be like, stop him dead in his tracks. Yo, can I get a picture with you, bro? You're the Nirvana baby. Nobody's going to know that. So, yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. This is just a victimhood grab. This is a knee-deep in victimhood culture. And he's trying to cash out on the trend. There's no way on earth you're going to stop the guy when he's 30 and be like, Yo, Nirvana baby, what's up? Give me some love. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Another thing to keep in mind on stocks. Oh my goodness, all you talk about is free market and stocks. Um, I read, I, I can't remember if I shared this, so I'm going to share it. I don't think I did because I wrote it on this week's podcast, 3x5 card for things to cover. Um, I went back and I looked at the money flow between 1950 and 2018 in the stock market. And the public, what I wrote down was the public buys the most at the top and the least at the bottom. And the data showed that the money flows from the general public into the stock market were three times greater when the market was topped than when it was in the bottom. So you need to flip that around if you are going to be 
a uh, more profitable um, participant in this grand global fiat-backed scheme that we call equities trading. Um, so I've got a couple plays um, for the fourth quarter into the first quarter of 2022. Um, I'm actually putting those on the trading desk over at brandamute.com. Um, you're going to charge for all of your research? Well, you're you're clearly not researching. You're sitting around, you know, getting wrapped around the axle on on, you know, hippies being mad that they didn't negotiate better. Uh, I'm the one who's paying for the Fintel uh, subscription reading through 174 pages worth of SEC filings to identify one line that I think, uh, not even one line, like literally like five words that I think are, that are like hidden code for setting up some sort of arbitrage opportunity. <laughs> the more you research, the less emotion you have. I think I've mentioned that I'm pretty uh, bullish on Beachbody, the P90X cats. And their stock price has just been getting clubbed like a baby seal. Oh no, you're you you hate animals. Um, over the last ever since it, man, I mean it's been they they IPO'd they despacked at ten, shot to thirteen fifty. Now they're down to six. So I mean, if you bought the thirteen fifty top, um, you are more than fifty percent down on your investment. Um, which is again why. Eventually, you should go over and check out the trading desk training videos because you could have identified in March that a descending wedge was ultimately setting up in March. Um, you can't predict the future. No, but I can draw lines on a screen and make conclusions that most of the time stick. Uh, anyway, so you know they're they're in the toilet share price wise. I've been accumulating warrants. Um, I haven't I haven't bought more. I bought them in the one fifties. Um, they're down to the 120s. I think yesterday they closed at 124. Um, I'm kind of hoping, I'm kind of hoping, like actually in, in my um, getting things done planning book, uh, every day you write down like, what are you excited for this week? And I wrote down the potential of buying Beachbody warrants under 50 cents. So I'm kind of hoping that if the whole Evergrande uh, inter bond, you know, interest rate thing blows up that, uh, I can scoop up some beach body warrants around 50 cents or lower. That would make my fourth quarter. That would be amazing. <coughs> anyway, so yesterday um, on this stock twits, stock twits is like the bot generated cesspool equivalent of Twitter, except instead of, you know, railing about whatever the political outrage of the day is, you can rant and rave incoherently about stocks. And I'm convinced that 80% of that stuff is just algorithmic-driven, bot-generated nonsense. Um, and so, you know, there are some real people you can pay for a pro uh, subscription, and it puts a little green, like kind of like the blue check mark on Twitter and Instagram. It puts a little like green thing next to your name, and it's like, okay, this is a real person because they're paying money for it. And so people were like, uh, Amazon announced yesterday that they were going to be dipping their toes into the fitness space through this thing called Halo. A halo app um, in order to you know compete with peloton and they're going to be charging 3.99 a month for a subscription in this app and everybody was like oh no this is going to be terrible for beachbody because 
Halo's launching and it's going to compete with Beachbody. And so you go and you research and you find out that in October, November of 2020, Amazon announced, hey, we are partnering with OpenFit, which is a fitness app, to develop uh, fitness content and fitness workouts for our new upcoming Halo app. Well, guess, just guess which company Beachbody bought in December of last year and was included in the merger with MYX Bike. Uh, I don't know. OpenFit. Ay, ay, ay. So you post that and you're like, yo, stop panicking and jumping out the, the 15th story window of your uh, you know, Wall Street office, or it's probably not even those people. Um, stop panicking and realize that the company that Amazon partnered with to create the content for their Halo app is a subsidiary of Beachbody. Doi, hello. I, I don't understand how that's um, negative for Beachbody, but whatever. You keep chasing GameStop, and uh, you keep you keep pouring your money into the top things that are at the top, and I'll keep uh, just plowing up stuff off the dredges. <laughs> so, um, but I will say, you really kind of have to have some clarity and conviction on where you're headed with something, because when you're averaged in. Um, at a buck fifty something, and you see warrants plunge to a buck twenty something, and you realize just from other spacs that they could easily go to the forty to sixty cent range. You're like, huh? Yeah, okay. So if it went to fifty cents, I'd be down like you know seventy percent on this thing. Not pretty. But the thing that I've concluded over the last couple weeks is you have to when you're accumulating the bottom dredges, you have to calculate the percentage current percentage moves in light of your future target price and what i mean by that probably the, you know the most obvious example is the african oil company i was i was scraping the bottom floor at 30 cents a share and you know when it went to 90 that's a 300 you know that's a three multiplier it's like holy smokes that's a great move when it ultimately goes to 11 12 bucks like it did a 60 cent move at, at 11 to $12 is not that much. So that's what I'm talking about. So if you if you have to have some conviction and clarity on, okay, I can, I can ignore a potential $1 move um, in Beachbody warrants if I think that their future price is gonna be 10 bucks or 15 bucks or 20 bucks. Um, or even $8. I mean, I think the most bearish case I can come up with is eight bucks for these warrants um, because that's what they topped out at um, when they first announced their merger and everybody was excited. Warrants were $8 a share. And and the uh, they weren't $8 a share, they were $8 a warrant. And the Beachbody shares were sitting at like $18.50. Um, so if you're going to scrape the dredges of a particular individual stock, um, you have to be. You have to calculate those current moves in light of what you believe the future valuation is. Um, I think that's the only way you can stomach it. Because otherwise, I mean, literally, I, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of October, war those warrants are at seventy-five cents. Um, and you know, that's I would be sitting on a fifty percent loss at that point. And if I was like, oh crap, sell, 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 um, you know. I get taken to cleaners and lose 50% of my money. 
but I've got substantial cash on the sidelines to where if they go to 75 cents, I will at least double my position. Um, and I actually had a dream that they, that they dropped to eight cents a share and I'm just buying, I was like panic buying them. Um, so eight cents a warrant, dude, eight cents a warrant and, uh, eight cents a warrant on, on Beachbody over the next five years. I think I'd be sipping Mai Tais and podcasting from, uh, from a mobile home trailer parked somewhere. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Dude, if you could get beach body warrants for eight cents a share, I'm not a financial uh, professional and this is not investment advice. Um, I'm just telling you what I would do. If beach body warrants were eight cents a share, I would do everything within my power to buy as many of those as I possibly could. So you got to flip it. You got to flip it. You can't be the public putting three times as much money in at the top. Um, and as I've said before, it's a it's a balancing act between, okay, you know, so this particular individual stock is at the bottom, but the overall market is at the top. How do those converge? Um, my guess is they that uh, the, the individual stocks that are at the bottom, they still take a hit, but I don't think they take as big of a hit as say like a Peloton um, because there's no, there's no error in the stock price. And what I mean by that is the gap between the current price and the 200 day moving average. Um, which is why I did buy some puts, bought some live puts this week, uh, bought some live puts on the SPY index, um, sh which is essentially uh, placing a calculated bet that I bought a March 22 put on the SPY that it would come back to its its 200 day moving average is, is 320. Um, and I bought a March 22 put at 350. Um, so that it will move towards that average. Yesterday when the market was down 2%, that particular uh, put option was up 30%. So I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the insane leverage you can get out of options. Um, I bought an $80 put on the QQQ on Monday and when the market was up, I was down 45% in one day on that particular option. Um, but then on Tuesday when the market bombed, uh, I was up almost 60% in one day on that and I was up like 18% overall. So the the volatility in options are bananas and I'm just I'm dabbling in them with with low dollar amounts. I mean an $80 put on on the Nasdaq. I mean, I mean I spend 80 bucks at the movie theater if I take the family out, so whatever. Um, but the fact that you can go from being down 45% to being up a net 18% in two trading days blows me away. Um, and on the, the SPY put, I, I, I only put 450 bucks on the SPY and was up 30% yesterday. The futures are up this morning, so I'm guessing that will correct, but that one is a March 2022 expiration. So I'm just gonna hold that one at least, um, let's see, what's the calendar tell us? Calendar tells us that October 15th is the next options expiration day. And um, October 30th, Friday, Friday, October, Friday, October 29th is the, the end of October is hedge funds tax season. So between now and the end of October, I think you're going to see um, not only are we due for a correction to the 200 day moving average, this is also the time when hedge funds clear their books to take their losses. So 
put that you put the overcooked market with the Fed tapering bonds allegedly with hedge funds selling for their tax end of year tax breaks um, with options expiring in the middle of October. I think we're in for and you throw Evergrande on top of that potentially, you know, that whole domino effect. I think we could have some uh, pretty sizable um, de definitely volatility is going to be pretty high. VIX, VIX was up four points yesterday, which is pretty massive. Um, so anyway, I think that's I think that's what's going to transpire. Um, cool. I think that's about it. Oh, oh, real quick, tennis update. We hate your tennis stories. I played last Saturday with uh, in the men's league here, the AA one for Atlanta. Um, I had the privilege of playing with a guy. I partnered with a guy who played his college ball in the 90s, a couple years older than me. He played his college ball in the SEC, and then he ended up going on, and he won the doubles title at a very prestigious Grand Slam event in the early 2000s. So I got partnered with this guy, and it was it was awesome playing with him. Um, and and surprisingly, he he didn't have a huge weapon. He didn't have a booming serve. He didn't have crushing ground strokes. Um, the two things that stood out to me, um, actually three things stood out to me. One, the placement on his serve. Uh, placement on his serve was impeccable. Um, and we were playing these two younger, you know, recently out of college kids, you know, and they're looking to tee off on big serves. And he's just, you know, deftly placing them in positions that are uncomfortable, stretching them wide, jamming their, you know, their left hip. Um, placement of his serve was impeccable. Second thing that was clearly obvious is his the touch on his volleys was just next level. I mean, he probably hit a half a dozen winners like off his shoelaces um, for these crazy short angle drop shots. And I mean, the, the the racket head control and the composure to come up with an angle from a very defensive position blew me away. Um, and the third thing that probably the most impressive he, is he was just steady as she goes. Like a lot of a lot of tennis players, that even at the pro level, they get way too oversight. You know, they win a point and they're like, "Come on, let's go," you know, and then they lose a point and they're like, oh, "I suck," and they're smashing their head and complaining to their coaches. And so they're they're like bipolar, freaking manic depressive throughout the entire match. And this guy was just like he embodied the whole you know you hear like act like you've been there i mean obviously he's been there he has a grand slam doubles title to his name um but i think that was the most impressive thing that stood out to me was just hey act like you've been there steady as she goes lose a point eh, win a point eh. there was there was like no there was no excess there was no excess on either side um, and all of the energy and the focus was put onto longer term strategy. And in fact, in the second set early, he said, hey, you know, let's apply. Let's just take this game where we were returning. They were serving. We're still on serve. He said, let's take this game and just make sure we're making them earn this game. Apply pressure, make them play a lot of balls. Let's make them earn this game. And so we did. We got a ton of balls in play, went to deuce a couple times. They ended up holding and on the changeover, he goes, "Hey, no worries at all." He goes, "That that game's gonna we're gonna we're gonna get paid dividends later on in this set because we he felt pressure on his serve." Sure enough, next time that guy served, we broke him. Um, and then I stepped up at five four to serve out the match, um, and just went back to the old six seven bread and butter. I just said, "Hey, I'm just gonna go 
you know, four hard flat body serves at him and, you know, see what happens. So the first hard body serve, I clipped at this guy and he, he kind of shanked one that would have been a tough ball. I mean, he, he kind of framed one that was short angled, um, but it didn't clear the net, barely, barely missed clearing the net and he got all mad. Second one, bombed one at the dude's body, jammed his back hip. He popped it up. The net guy put it away. Um, third one, put another big body serve in. The guy popped it out wide. And I ran over and just ripped a forehand winner down the line. Um, And then at 40 love, put another body serve in. Guy chipped it back low. And I actually snuck in behind it. And I put up a shoelace volley lob over the dude that was at the net. Who being the young, you know, recently uh, out of college guy. Had the mobility to actually get back. Um, And he got his racket on it and tried an overhead. But it landed a couple feet out because he was late. So I joked with the guys later. I was like, uh, yeah, I, I threw up a couple too many volley lobs. I said, that's from playing 40 and over geezer doubles in Florida for too long. You're like, I'll just throw up a lob. They can't get to it. They don't lack the, they, they lack the mobility. <laughs> so when you're playing, when you're playing fresh out of college guys that can actually move, um, I would say that, uh, you can't you can't throw up the volley lobs as frequently because they actually have mobility and speed to get back on them. So anyway, so that was a fun experience, and uh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool to come full circle with tennis. Um, you know, playing it from the time I was three to eighteen, being super locked in on it, and then at eighteen, semi getting conned, semi choosing. Uh, that a better path for me was to go work in professional American evangelicalism for seven years um, and not touching a racket for 10 years. And then, you know, coming back in 2008 and starting to, you know, mess around with USTA leagues and things. And it's kind of cool to see. um, I just felt really thankful. I just felt really thankful. It was like, hey, I felt thankful to the Lord. Oh, you can't mention God. He's dead. Um. Just your conscience is. <laughs> Are you really talking spiritual smack? Um, anyway, I just felt I felt a lot of thankfulness um, that that uh, tennis has kind of come full circle. That you know, at that level, uh, even though I chose to bypass um, playing at the collegiate level and then not touching a racket for ten years, it's kind of come full circle, and I'm I'm back in. I'm, I'm engaging with the same people that I would have been uh, engaging with, um, you know, 25 years ago. So it's kind of cool, kind of cool. Thankful that my body's holding up. Um, back to working out. I did my six mile loop for the first time uh, since July. Uh, the hilly, the hilly loop, the six mile hilly loop um, up here in North Georgia, and at the five mile mark, I just had to walk. I walked in the last mile. I was gassed. I was gassed. I, I I started doing a little 5K. I'd been doing a 5K a few times a week. And then I pushed that out to four and a quarter miles. And I'd done that a few times. And then on this last weekend, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to bust out my six-mile loop. And got to mile five and I was I was toast, toasty McGhosty. All right, I got to get the day started. Um, I'm going to do a video in the trading desk on the VIX right now because holy smokes, that VIX is in a descending wedge and a descending wedge is bullish. 
Um, and when the VIX is bullish, that means that the rest of the market is going to be bearish. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but I'm just looking at the colors on the screen. That thing's setting up for a, that thing's setting up for a pop in my opinion. Holy moly. So we'll see how it goes. Um, hope everybody's doing well. Questions, you can send them to questions at muthanomics.com or podcast at muthanomics.com. Either one works. Hope everybody's having a good week and we'll talk at you later.